0: Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. I want to thank all of our listeners. We have some really loyal listeners in Japan and Australia. Thank you so much for all your support. And as always, you can drop by the Patreon page and help me keep my elderly cat in wet food. Anything you throw our away would be greatly appreciated. I'm going to put the link to the Patreon page down below. And as always, you can get a hold of me on Twitter and Instagram at Geekflossy. Now, I need to get some housekeeping out of the way. This episode contains graphic depictions of alleged child and ritual abuse, so it's not recommended for children under the age of 13, and listener discretion is advised. Now, with Halloween just a few days away, what would be more frightening than the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s? Now, before we get into this week's case, we're going to discuss the history of satanic panic in the United States, so you can understand Just how the system could allow things to get to this point. Most people, if they know of the satanic panic, know of it due to satanic ritual abuse. A rash of false allegations made against daycare centers in the 80s and 90s. Now, at its base, satanic ritual abuse claims relied on gung-ho law enforcement, unsubstantiated statements from children, and above all, coercive tactics by therapists and prosecutors. In 1969, an organist turned occultist by the name of Anton LaVey published the Satanic Bible, which plagiarized several different works of earlier philosophies of self-actualization and self-empowerment from writers like H.L. Mencken and Anne Rand. Nevertheless, it still became the base work of modern Satanism and the key text for the Church of Satan, a group LaVey officially founded in 1966. Then came the 1972 publication of Satan Cellar, a fabricated memoir by self-proclaimed Christian evangelist Mike Warnke, which was discredited 20 years later. Satan Cellar recounted a childhood and young adulthood of Warnke spent in intense satanic worship. The memoir claimed that he served as a satanic high priest and was engaged, among other things, in ritualistic sexual orgies. Now, the publication of the satanic rituals the same year reinforced the idea that dark occult rituals had become a part of life for many Americans, even though it had no connections to satanism or traditional occult religions. In the 70s, they saw other self-proclaimed former satanists who insisted that the world was being run by ritualistic satanic witch cults. These were John Todd, Herschel Smith, and David Hansen. Now, if you include Warnke, all of these men grew up in Southern California, and all of them claimed to have conversion experiences that made their stories appealing to Christians. All of them were also linked to emerging fundamentalist Christian right. Todd was supported by a Christian tract maker, John Chick, who used his fabricated claims as the basis for pamphlets advocating against Satanism. Warnke spent over a decade posing as an expert in Satanism for the fundamentalist evangelical Christian community, passing off much of his Madoff childhood memoir as a template for how to spot real Satanism. Fundamentalist preachers like Jerry Falwell and his Moral Majority, founded in 1979, gained prominence across the country, passing along a literal fire and brimstone style of Christianity. Anti-occult crusaders like Pat Pulling, who believed her son committed suicide because of an evil Dungeons & Dragons curse, crusaded against role-playing games as dangerous and demonic, backed by cult fear from Chick and his other attractors. Now, you have to remember, around this time, these people were getting plenty of press. Pat Pulling even got 2020 to do a segment on whether the game Dungeons & Dragons was demonic or not. That's why the evangelical movement isn't to blame alone. The media's role was huge in stoking the public's fear and fueling the misconceptions surrounding occult practices. In 1988, Geraldo Rivera's lore documentary, Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground, was the highest rated television documentary to date. And in 1980, a since discredited memoir called Michelle Remembers became a bestseller based on its detailing of a childhood spent undergoing shocking occult sexual abuse. Its authors were a controversial psychologist by the name of Lawrence Pazdar and his wife Michelle Smith, a former patient of Pazdar that he claimed to have regressed into childhood through hypnosis. Pastar claims to help Smith uncover memories of past abuse at the hands of members of the Church of Saint, which Pazdar insisted was older than LaVey's group by several centuries. Almost from the moment Michelle Remembers was published, its claims and allegations were repeatedly and thoroughly debunked by professionals. However, thanks to widespread media coverage, Pazdar and Smith were able to double down on their story and Pazdar became seen as an expert in the arena of what soon would become known as satanic ritual abuse. Despite the wild impossibility and the unverifiable foundation of the stories of grisly abuse and sexualities, Michelle Remembers was presented throughout the 80s and 90s as a textbook for legal professionals and other authorities. It also spawned several copycats, like 1988 Satan's Underground, a equally false memoir which embellished the mainstream idea of a massive intergenerational satanic sexual sex abuse cult. One that could be occurring right next door to you. The completely made up narrative of Michelle Remembers would directly impact the nation for over a decade. It's a call fantasies helped to spark a rash of wildly dramatic, highly unfounded accusations of satanic ritual abuse that were attached to a string of daycare centers throughout the 1980s. The belief that daycare owners across the country were enacting dark occult acts on children was the most prominent part of a broader daycare sex abuse mass panic, which itself was part of the 1980s broader wave of fear. Now, the first of these notorious cases was the Kern County preschool case. In 1980, in Bakersfield, California, social workers had just been reading Michelle Remembers as part of their training. Think about that. They took a book that was completely fake and were forcing social workers to read it as part of their training. When a number of children came forward to declare they had been molested as part of a local sex ring. Two of the girls have been coached by a grandparent who was believed to have a history of mental illness. And between 1984 and 1986, the investigation into these claims of satanic ritual abuse would send at least 26 people to jail, despite a complete lack of corroborating evidence for anything. Nearly every single one of these convictions has since been overturned, including that of a local carpenter by the name of John Stahl, who spent 20 years of a 40-year sentence in jail before he was exonerated. As adults, several of the children involved in these trials professed that they were traumatized by the experience and deeply disturbed by the damage they caused to these people's lives. Among many of the failed prosecutions of satanic ritual abuse in daycares was the McMartin case, perhaps the most famous. This became the largest longest, and most expensive trial in the history of the state of California. This massive investigation began in 1983 when one parent accused one of the staff members at McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, of abuse. During the police investigation, a child service nonprofit group, which was known as the Children's Institute, conducted examinations of four children who attended the daycare. The examinations were run by a woman named Key McFarlane, who was an unlicensed psychotherapist. McFarlane had no psychological or medical training of any kind, and still she and two equally unqualified assistants were allowed to conduct these investigations. They used the famous anatomically correct dolls and several other questionable methods of interrogation these extremely coercive tactics led to false memories being planted among the children which then led to highly fantastic claims of abuse directed at even more of the staff members out of 400 children the interviewers claimed that 359 of them had been abused the accusations collected by the children's institute resulted in a staggering 321 counts of child abuse being levied against seven daycare members by 41 separate children. Now, Pazdar, who we discussed earlier, was considered an expert and he was among several people who consulted on the case. After six years of investigation and litigation and a five-year trial, the case ultimately just fell apart due to lack of evidence. The original accusing parent in the case was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and the investigative techniques used by the Children's Institute were thoroughly discredited by the psychological community. And one by one, every single charge was dropped due to insufficient evidence. Now, these are two of the most notorious cases. They all have the same root cause, mass hysteria. Before we get into what mass hysteria is, let's talk about the fact that this led to a change in how children were interviewed when there were accusations of sex abuse. No longer do we ask leading questions. Things like, were you touched? Who touched you? Did so-and-so touch you? Instead, we ask things like, how are you feeling? How do you feel when you visit your dad? What do you and dad do? We let them fill in the blanks. The other thing that you have to remember is small children do not have the understanding to grasp concepts like sex or abuse. The words and language that they use to describe things are gonna be very rudimental. And many times they need children to draw pictures because they just don't have the words to explain what's happening to them. So this led to a change in tactics and a change in the way social workers and any type of child um, psychology expert, deals with a child, so that was one of the good things that came of this. Now, when we talk about mass hysteria in sociology and psychology circles, mass hysteria, which also can be known as collective hysteria, group hysteria, or collective obsessional disorder, is a phenomenon that transmits collective illusions of threats, whether they're real or imaginary, throughout a population in society as a result of rumors and fear-mongering. Now, two of the most famous cases of mass hysteria in the United States are the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, when Abigail Williams, Betty Harris, Ann Putnam Jr., and Elizabeth Hubbard begin to have fits that were described as a minister as, quote, beyond the power of natural disease, end quote. The events resulted in the Salem witch trials, a series of hearings leading up to the execution of 20 citizens in Salem Village in Massachusetts and nearby towns. The episode is one of America's most notorious cases of mass hysteria and has been used in politics and literature as a cautionary tale about the dangers of religious extremism, false accusations, and what can happen when you're denied due process. Now the next case is McCarthyism. The practice of making accusations of subversion or treason without proper evidence. The term refers to US Senator Joseph McCarthy and is also called the Second Red Scare. It lasted from the late 1940s into the 1950s and was characterized by a heightened political repression as well as an alleged campaign spreading fear of communism in communist influence in the American institutions and of espionage by Soviet agents. Now, during the McCarthy era, hundreds of Americans were accused of being communists or communist sympathizers and became the subject of aggressive investigations and questioning before the government or even private industry panels. The primary targets of such suspicions were government employees and people in the entertainment industry It also encompassed educators and labor union activists. Suspicions were often given credibility despite having any evidence and the level of threat posed by a person's real or supposed leftist associations many times was exaggerated. Many people suffered losing their jobs, destruction of their careers. Some people were even sent to jail. Now, most of these punishments came about through trial verdicts that were later overturned due to laws that were declared unconstitutional or charges were dismissed for being outright illegal. The most notable example of McCarthyism includes investigations that were led by Senator McCarthy himself, and those hearings were conducted in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. Now, all of this history brings us to the Oak Hill, Texas case of Dan and Fran Keller. Oak Hill is a prominent suburb in Austin. In the summer of 1991, the therapist of a three-year-old child that was being treated for behavioral problems due to her parents' divorce alleged that the Kellers had sexually abused the girl. The child's mother contacted the police who alerted the case's eventual prosecuting attorney, who then contacted a friend whose child was enrolled in a daycare and being treated by the exact same therapist. During the time leading up to the trial, two other children from the daycare offered similar accusations. According to the children, the couple served them blood-laced Kool-Aid, forced them to have videotaped sex with adults and other children. They then said as well that the Kellers wore white robes and lit candles before they hurt them. They also stated that the Kellers ...forced them to participate or watch in the killing and dismemberment of cats, dogs, and babies. They also claimed they were taken to the cemetery, forced to dig up bodies, and had to bring the bones back with them. They also stated that sometimes they had to dig new holes... For the freshly killed animals and one child even supposedly stated that a passerby who caught them was dismembered with a chainsaw the children even recalled several trips to mexico where they were sexually abused by soldiers before they were returned home to austin in time to meet their parents at daycare at the end of the day one child even claimed that he used satan's arm as a paintbrush Other children claimed that they were buried alive with animals and two children even said that they were thrown in a swimming pool with sharks in the middle of Texas. Other children claimed that the couple dressed up as pumpkins and shot them and then resurrected them after they'd been shot. Now, I take this seriously. This show tends to be more somber, but this is just completely ridiculous. I told several friends of mine when I was doing this research that there was no way I could have been on this jury. I would have been laughing out loud at these charges. I the, I can just picture the judge looking over me and saying, "Juror number five, is there something you want to share with the rest of us? And I would be like, you mean other than my utter disbelief that this jackass has a license to practice law? Now, on top of all of these allegations, An adult who had recently recovered memories of childhood ritual abuse claimed the abuse was an example of satanic ritual and parents began to contact one another, eventually pressing charges. With information gathered from Believe the Children, an organization created by parents involved in the McMartin preschool trial, children enrolled in the Keller's daycare were repeatedly questioned by parents, therapists, law enforcement as part of the investigation it's another big no-no the least amount of people that questions the child the least chance there is that what they have to say will be coached or tainted in some way suspicion expanded to include public officials police officers one officer's ex-husband was interrogated for several hours and had to take two polygraph tests eventually They confessed child abuse, not ritual sex abuse, and then retracted the confession, stating it was due to exhaustion. After his confession though, the Kellers panicked and fled the state, later claiming it was due to the horrible sentences that other formerly accused people had gotten. The children were all diagnosed with dissociative identity disorder. The Kellers had a six day trial. The first child whose testimony began the investigation against the Kellers claimed no abuse had ever taken place and that she was coached to claim that she was abused. The only physical evidence of abuse in the case was presented by Dr. Michael Mao, an emergency room physician at Brackenridge Hospital, who examined the three-year-old girl in 1991 on the night she first accused Dan Keller of abuse. Mao testified at the Keller's trial that he found two tears in the girl's hymen consistent with sexual abuse and determined the injuries were less than 24 hours old. Now, three years after the trial, while attending a medical seminar, Mao saw a slide presentation on normal pediatric hymens that included a photo that had tears identical to what he observed in the girl. Now, this fundamentally changed his view on what had happened. He even stated that he did try and contact the leading detective, but the detective did not want to hear anything he had to say as he had already made up his mind that the Kellers were guilty. Now, when the Austin Chronicle began reinvestigating the case in 2008, they were stunned to learn that police and prosecutors who worked on the case in the 90s Still believe most of the accusations against the Kellers. The Austin Police Department refused to release its investigative report on the case, and this forced the Chronicle to take them to court. They ultimately run and received a full, unredacted version of the case files. After reading the report, it was hard to it was not hard to understand why they had fought to keep it a secret, as quoted by the Austin Chronicle. They stated, quote, it was an all caps run on sentence fever dream of full of breathless accusations and absent of any actual investigation that could prove or disprove the claims. End quote. Many times people snoted stated they had seen the lead investigator take the girl who accused the Kellers of abuse to lunch at McDonald's before taking her on drives through the neighborhood Where she would then point out locations and say, yeah, I was abused there. And yeah, I recognize the cemetery where I had to carry bones home and where they buried and killed babies. And many people within the neighborhood were there and even involved in the series of interviews that took place in the neighborhood. Not once did any of the investigators question any of the children's statements. Now, the Kellers were found guilty and given sentences of 48 years each. Fran Keller went to a prison near Marlin, Texas, while Dan Keller went to a prison near Amarillo, Texas. Mao's medical opinion had fundamentally changed, and he offered, and this offered the Kellers an avenue to challenge their convictions. During a hearing in the summer of 2013, He unequivocally stated without a doubt that the child's genitalia had been normal and that he had gotten it wrong when he examined her in 1991. It also became clear that the defense had their hands tied at trial. They were incapable of countering much of the testimony in part because they only had restricted access to critical evidence. This meaning they were not given... um, full disclosure one of the things that they had re- they didn't have access to was one of the medical experts reports uh, the children's interview videos any of the police reports and even the medical report for example the state gave their own witnesses all of the documents related to the case before they testified Whereas the defense didn't have access to any of those until the day that the trial started, which meant when it was time for their expert to testify, he had less than half of the specifics that the other expert had because he didn't have access to all of the the facts of the case. On top of that, um, the defense wasn't even given things like therapy notes that uh, their expert, that the prosecution's expert, wrote when he talked to the children and oftentimes it made their examinations seem like they were choppy and not even complete like they they didn't know what they were doing after the 2013 hearing da rosemary lemberg who had been head of the office's child abuse unit at the time of their prosecution ultimately agreed the couple did not receive a fair trial They were released shortly before Christmas that year. While there was no doubt the couple could not be retried, over the years, Lemberg declined to take the final step and exonerate them. She claimed that she couldn't find a pathway to innocence for them, that she was basically trying to prove a negative and seeking evidence that our crime never happened. So basically she just gave them the speech from Pulp Fiction about how the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence but the problem with this is that the kellers didn't have an exoneration which caused problems for this they still had a conviction for sexual assault and it was almost impossible to find work or a place to live without this without an income they had to scrape by with the help of family and they lived on food stamps and welfare they hadn't gotten they had no medical insurance and couldn't get medical attention for health issues they got from the beatings they suffered in prison being supposed pedophiles and child abusers but luckily for them on June 20th 2017 the couple was finally exonerated and all charges were dropped later that year the callers received 3.4 million dollars apiece from the state fund for those wrongly convicted of crimes. The state's wrongful conviction compensation fund pays $80,000 for each year in prison, plus a matching annuity that provides annual payments of 5% interest as long as the recipient isn't alive and not convicted of a felony. Now, unfortunately, the couple's marriage couldn't survive prison, and they divorced shortly after going in, but they are still extremely close and spend a great deal of time together and with their children. Now, I hope that you join us again in two weeks when we take a look at the case of the group, a loosely tied network of child adolescent drug treatment programs that many feel was run as a cult. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why People can do such awful things.